You can be turning to John chapter 6 in the meantime. Just a quick catch up, a little reminder of where we're at, what we're doing. Um, last week, Stephen Brockett launched our new series. It's an eight-part series called I Am, where we're going to be looking at um, the seven I Am um, declarations that Jesus makes. You probably noticed my maths is wrong there because there's eight Sundays and seven declarations. The reason being, last Sunday, we just felt it was important that Stephen just drills down into those first two words alone. I am. Before we rush into the rest of those sayings that Jesus um, mentions, it gets, gets written down in uh, the book of John. For the Jewish people back then, we, need to, we don't get this with our modern Western brains. For the people back then, just those two words, I am, was enough to send shockwaves. And as Stephen told us last week, he took us on a brilliant whistle-stop tour um, through the Bible of all these occasions where I am comes up. And you realise when Jesus says, I am, he's not just talking like I am going to the shops, I am going to have porridge. He's saying, I am, is this emphatic declaration of God's name. In front of Moses, God the Father says, I am who I am. So when Jesus says those two words together like that, I am, oh, he meant business. The thing was, he was declaring himself by doing so as the very same eternal person as the Father. And it generated for him a lot of awe, to be fair, from some people, but actually a lot of trouble from others as a result. He did not get executed for being a nice man. He got executed for claiming to be God. And it upset a lot of people. Some, even today, some people say, oh, well, Jesus, he never really claimed to be God, did he? Well, if once you understand the... Uh, the weight of those two words, when he says that, he clearly is claiming to be God. And listeners back then would have scoffed at the suggestion he wasn't claiming to be God. They knew it, and they took offence, and they tried to, and ended up killing him. So here we have many very blatant historical recordings. The, the Gospels are the most, I would suggest, even secular historian, historians would say this, the Gospels are the most um, validated historical documents on the planet. And they are biographies of Jesus from four different people's perspectives of what they saw and uh, interviewing other people and so on. And um, in here we have Jesus saying, I am God. I am. And then what's interesting though is Jesus then took it to a number of different um, realms that would melt their brains and, to be honest, in some ways melt our brains further. Uh, at one point he says, I'm the door. What? I'm the I'm I'm the grapevine. It says, I'm the light. It says, I'm bread. I am the bread of life. Now, they can be quite confusing. We're going to spend today and the next six weeks delving deeper into what each, each of these means. Now we understand the importance of the words, I am. We're going to take it further and delve deep into each of the seven declarations themselves. And today we're looking at bread of life, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We're going to start reading from verse 25 in just a minute. But to bring it up to speed, just explain why John is doing this. See, John, the author, became Jesus' best friend on the planet. While Jesus was here in the flesh, John was his BFF, his best friend forever. He was the closest person he ever, he ever had a relationship with in that respect. And John is a bit of a gap filler. That's what, that's what he does. That's kind of his calling. His life, even into old age, was about seeking the church's health. And while others, Peter and Paul and so on, are chasing off on mission, getting into very more obvious scrapes, John is a very different character. When, for example, when Jesus first meets Peter, Peter is fishing. 
And Jesus says to him, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you a catcher of souls. He uses that as an echo of who he's going to become. When Jesus meets John, he's mending the nets. He's doing the repairs. He's filling the gaps. And that's kind of... John goes on to be a mender of nets in many ways in the, in the church. He spends most of his life in Ephesus, in fact. He, he's, he's exiled for a while and then he returns there to die. Ephesus becomes his main base. He doesn't go around on big missions necessarily. He spends a lot of time in one place ensuring the health and plugging the gaps. He's a fixer. He's ensuring nothing is missing. And included, it's included in his biography of Jesus. He's including, and in his letters later on as well, he's including things that are missing elsewhere. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are uh, kind of lumped together. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. There's a reason why. It's because they're very similar in content. They're very similar in, point of, point, in a perspective, point of view. And they're also very similar in, in many ways in sequence as well. John's is a real standout. It's really, really different. He, and here he adds a lot of what the other Gospels haven't even had a chance to include. He even says at the end of his book, said there's not, there, there wouldn't even be enough room in the world for all the books to be written about what Jesus did. But he's just... Desperately trying to cram at least some of the remaining stuff in for posterity, for us to have now. And that includes Jesus' jaw-dropping I am statements. So this occasion, this is the first one we're going to look at. John chapter 6. We'll start from verse 25. Jesus has fed a multitude. He's um, been out in the middle of nowhere up this mountain. Huge, great crowd. Jesus feeds them miraculously um, with a heavenly intervention. And then he walks on the water as you do, to catch up with his disciples who've gone ahead in the boat to the other side. And when he does, there's a little fascinating little detail in there, he instantly transports the boat to the shore. He uses some Star Trek transporter, heavenly version, and he transports the boat in an instant to the other shore. The next day, the crowd are like, where's Jesus gone? And they discover where he's gone, and they get in their own boats and they follow him. So now they're on the other side, they were in the middle of nowhere with him, getting fed miraculously, they've followed him to the other side. And when they find him, This is what happens. We're going to read this in two parts. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, because of the physical food, the meal I gave you yesterday. He says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What what work do you perform? Well, they just seen one. (laughs) What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you see me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son 
and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So, naturally, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Let's just get our heads, let's let's kind of put our feet in their shoes. Let's just step into where they're at at the moment. Remember Stephen alluded to this last week. He was reminding us that there is an echo here that they're already mentioning of something that uh, happened in their people's history. The Jewish people, some 1,300 or so years before this moment, God's people, a million plus, were in slavery in Egypt. And through miracles and divine intervention, God enabled them to flee their slave masters in Egypt and to cross the sea into the wilderness, into the middle of nowhere. And while they were there, God feeds them with this manna, that's what these people were talking about, this heavenly bread. And he gives them quail as well, these heavenly birds, heavenly meat. He gives them this heavenly food while they're in the middle of nowhere and they survive there for a generation until he leads them across the water again into the promised land. Now we just need to spot the journey there that's been taken through the water, middle of nowhere, getting fed from, from heaven through the water again into the promised land. And Jesus is pointing out the echo here. Jesus has crossed the sea. He's fed the people in the middle of nowhere. He's travelled and they've travelled across the water again and now they're standing somewhere else. And Jesus, rightly, points out, it's different now. Do you not see what's happening? Do you not see the shift? He's saying, where you are is not where you were. They're still thinking about their bellies. They're still thinking about yesterday's miraculous lunch. Jesus is thinking about the fulfillment of prophecies. Jesus is thinking about feeding a heavenly appetite, not just the physical one. At no point is Jesus saying, don't eat physical food. (laughs) Don't mishear what's not there. But he is urging them to see beyond the physical. All they're doing is thinking about their bellies and what other miracles are going to do to convince us. And I really like those fish and those loaves yesterday. He's saying, you need to acknowledge your spiritual appetites. And they can only be satisfied a certain way. The only way that spiritual void can be filled, he's saying, is found in me. I'm the only way you can feel that hunger. And so the story continues. Verse 42. So they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I, here he goes again, am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He continues and kind of starts repeating what he's already mentioned. Three times now he said to them, I am the bread of life. It's interesting. Let's just look at that word bread for starters. He's not using another type of foodstuff. He's using bread for a reason. He's not talking about I am the brisket of life or I am the banana of life. I am the bread of life. Why has he chosen bread? Well, 
even in our language, we've got an essence of this. We've got to understand with his modern-day English, and this is the language that he's using back then. It's very different. But actually, there's a similarity, as an echo in, in our own language. You use the phrase bread and butter, my bread and butter. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, maybe gardening is my bread and butter these days. This is how I'm providing for myself and my family, by gardening and doing landscaping or whatever. Or I'm a musician, and I'd love to make a living out of that, but it's not possible, so I, um, building websites is my bread and butter. Does that make sense? We're talking about our basic needs, our livelihoods, our, uh, the fu funding means to the fundamental requirements for existence, our bread and butter. And in many ways, this is quite similar. Jesus here is describing himself using a similar theme. And we need to realize there is more to life than the material things. It's quite often what the world is just feeding, quite telling us. And there is a fundamental requirement for true life that is not found anywhere other than in him. He's not saying, I am a bread of life. What is it he's saying? I am the, the bread of life. And that's the fascinating thing as well. It's not just the, it's I am. Not I will give you. So he's not just saying heavily, heavily bread is available through me. He's saying it's him. I am the bread of life. But how does that work? How do, what, what do we do with this? How do we, what difference does this make to Steve on a Tuesday night, Friday morning, at the weekend? What, what, does it, what does it mean? Well, think about physical food, first of all. Physical food keeps us alive. We need it for life. But there's also a bit more of that. There's something about food that has a different dynamic where there's something deeper to it. The, the best sharing of life is around a table, isn't it? And so you can talk with someone you can get to know them to a certain degree. You can sit with someone. You can, you, know, you can do all those things, but without food, when that, when that gets brought into the dynamic, suddenly there's a deeper intimacy and a bonding in sharing food together. It does change things. To truly know someone, it's to share life. And that goes beyond having regular appointments with them or, or even letting them sleep in your spare room. When you're sitting around a table sharing food together, suddenly something there's a shift in the relationship. There's a more of a vulnerability together. And so eating and drinking together, it unearths far more. And so when it comes to the heavenly aspects, heavenly bread, heavenly uh, feeding, a heavenly appetite is about knowing God. It's about sharing with him at a, at a deeper, more intimate level. It's not just knowing about, you see? It's about knowing. It's about sharing life together, doing life together. So Jesus is taking this even further, but not only saying we'll even eat with him. There's the wedding feast that we heard about earlier. You see in Revelation, in eternity commences with a wedding feast. There'll be a sharing of life together there. But Jesus isn't even saying that. You get to eat with me. He's saying <laughs> we get to partake of him. And this is where it gets a bit abstract and a bit complicated, a bit hard for us to kind of take on board. Am I the only one? No? Yeah? No? Yeah? Let's look at it like this. I'm not, not getting new agey, but eating itself is about absorbing life. You think about the things we eat. Vegetables, animals, they're once living things that we're taking on and they become our building blocks. Does that make sense? And so when Jesus is saying, eat me, it's not some weird spiritual cannibalism he's talking about. It's, it's, it's about, I mean, how do you grow physically? You eat physical food. How do you grow spiritually? How do you feed a heavenly appetite with the things of heaven? And as we feast on the things of heaven, we do that by depending on Jesus, who is the bread, for provision and sustenance of life. There's a wonderful verse in Colossians chapter 1. 
How quick can I find it? Colossians chapter 1, where it says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and he is before things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body. It's talking about he, all things were created through him, but all things hold together in him as well. He sustains things. Even when he was that little baby in that cave around the back of an inn, he was holding the universe together. Blows my head. Jesus creates, all things are created through him. He's the giver of life, but he's also the sustainer of life. He's the provider and the sustainer. We need to recognize that food provides and sustains life. Heavenly bread provides and sustains life from a heavenly, at a heavenly level. This is what Jesus does. He gives and he sustains. And so leaning on him and depending on him as the source of all good things, the source of life and the sustainer of life, suddenly that changes our dynamic of how we live, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus repeats the Father's words from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live on bread alone. It's not, it's more, there's more than the physical. But man will live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's talking about obedience, about following the Father in his footsteps. And so when he says, eat me, he's saying, follow me. When he says, eat me, he's saying, partake with me. When of me. When he says, eat me, he's saying, are you going to be obedient? Are you going to lean on me for the, your source of life, for your source of sustenance as well as provision? Even think about communion as well. Eat this, this is my body. Drink this, this is my blood. It's about stepping into that moment in the cross and placing, it's kind of betting your life on it, placing everything in his hands. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to partake of this. I'm going to partake of you and what you've done for me. So eat me. Our heavenly appetites can only be satisfied by heavenly things. It's not rocket science, is it? And the king of heaven here is showing us how, how that's done. Obedience is the key to unlocking fullness of life by following the one who has designed life and who rules over it all. When we think about it, it's quite obvious. But do we always look like that in our lives? Just asking. Asking myself. Filling our bellies with the things of heaven simply means following Jesus and seeing his building blocks strengthen us as we do that. Seeing his building blocks put meat on our bones, on our spiritual bones. Seeing his building blocks place energy in our weary spiritual muscles. Those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. There needs to be that expectation that as we do this, we will grow. As we do this, we will stand firmer. As we do this, we will grow stronger. As we do this, we will know him more. When, um, I mean, people, are I'm sure you are familiar with the Alice in Wonderland story. And there's that moment where she drinks from an, uh, an unmarked bottle. Clever girl. <laughs> Why would she do that? Bleach or vodka? You just don't have vodka, would be all right. Bleach would be horrible, wouldn't it? But she just drinks from this bottle and she shrinks, doesn't she? And then she finds this cupcake. There's a cupcake with, and it says on it, eat me. Now she knows. She doesn't know if it's going to make her bigger. She doesn't know if it's going to make her smaller. She knows eating it will transform her. Yeah? And so same here. We, we, in fact, she grows enormous as a result. We can't, we can't be feeding on Jesus, letting his words become building blocks in our very being without expecting massive transformation. That should be our expectation as we feast on his word. 
as we put it into practice, put it into action, as we're obedient, as we follow after him, as we walk in his footsteps. The more we rely on Jesus for our spiritual sustenance, the more we will grow into spiritual giants who will impact our neighbourhoods and beyond for his purposes and for his glory. Amen? We need to expect this. Sometimes we can be a bit flippant. Oh, I haven't read the Bible today. I'll leave it to later. Or, Phew, tick the box. I've read the Bible today. This is, this, is, this is his word. He is the word of God. And as, we take, as we're partaking of him, we're taking on his building blocks to be sustained for the day to come and for the years ahead. This is what we feast on. This is what it means to feast on him. It's an absolute guaranteed outcome if we actually truly put those words into practice. So, it's only a shorter one today, so I want to make room to pray for the school. But I want to finish with a question. What are we eating? What are we eating? You know the phrase, you are what you eat? What you feast on will come out, will become evident just in your character and your lifestyle. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I feasting on Jesus as the bread of life? Or have I been replacing him? With something insubstantial or possibly poisonous? What are we feasting on for our, our life and sustenance? Put it another way. Where do you go when you're hungry? Spiritually hungry. Not just Sainsbury's. Where do you go when you're spiritually hungry? When you're discontented? When you're feeling sorry for yourself? When you're feeling disappointed? When you're spiritually hungry? What would you turn to? Would you turn to physical food, comfort food? That can be the first reaction. Get that tub of Ben and Jerry's out. Now, food is good. Food is meant to be eaten. It's meant to be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with getting the ice cream out of the freezer. But comfort food is a whole other dish to Jesus. When you're feeling spiritually hungry, is that your first port of call? Or is he your first port of call? It's okay to eat the ice cream. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah? So where do you turn to? Do you turn to isolation? Do you retreat and hide away? Now, for introverts like myself, you recharge by being nowhere near human beings. <laughs> I, love, I love people. They're brilliant. But I recharge by being in my own place. That's okay. That's how you're wired. Extroverts recharge by being in a crowd or in a, in a room with other people. That's fine. That's different. But do you hide to lick your wounds? And are you hiding from him as well? Or are you praying? See the difference? Do you hide in sexual fantasies? Do you hide in shopping? I mean, we all, there's a number of things. We can all be quite unique. But you probably know if there's one thing you're more likely to turn to rather than Jesus, just be aware of what that thing is. Even doing more church. You could turn to doing more church so you feel better about yourself. I'm helping people and doing more things for the Lord and learning more about what's in the Bible. Not actually running to him. <laughs> Those can still be two very, very different things. Where do you go when you're spiritually hungry? By the end of this incident that we've just been reading, all the people at large have walked away. You see it in verses 66, 67. All of the people at large he's been talking to have walked away. And actually, so have most of Jesus' actual followers. All he gets left with are the twelve. That's pretty brutal. That's pretty brutal. And that's a sobering wake-up call. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to accept these words and our actions over the next few days, weeks and months will prove that? 
Are we willing to accept these words and step into it? Have we truly, or are we truly stepping into what it means to depend on Jesus as our eternal sustenance? Whether you, you don't know Jesus yet is a question for you, and I'd love to speak with you and pray with you afterwards. If, that's, if this is all brand new to you, or you've not made that step into saying to Jesus, <laughs> I'm broken and I need you. And I want to lean on what you've done for me. And I want to follow after you. If you want to make that prayer, come and find me afterwards. I'll spend time with you. But even if you have, we can still so easily go off the boil. We can so easily, our heart's compass turns another way. And we have other things we turn to before him. Have we truly stepped into what it means to depend on Jesus as our eternal sustenance? Or are we turning to other things to fill our heavenly appetite? He says, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. When you're feeling spiritually empty, where's the first place you should go? Where's the first place you normally go? Don't answer. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? And he said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are we truly coming to Jesus and believing in him for all that is life-giving in every moment? of our days or do we seek it elsewhere and we just treat Jesus as a convenient cash machine when we need him it's got to be really careful not being flippant put it another way is Jesus your staple diet or is he just a side dish is he just a bit of dessert for later or is he your bread and butter let me just pray Jesus Jesus, we affirm what your word tells us, that you are the great I am. Lord, we thank you for providing your word where we can trust what it says. These amazing recordings of what you did on this planet, what you've done for us, what you continue to do, your promises over us. And we do affirm that you said, I am the bread of life. I am the, the giver and sustainer of Life and love. And Lord, we just we thank you for that. But Lord, we are fickle human beings and we find it so hard. I know my heart gets so easily distracted by the bling of life. Things around me. Lord, I just, I need your help. We all need your help. Holy Spirit. If you recognise this need, just lift your hands. You don't have to, but if you, if you feel this is for you, just... Just lift your hands just to him. It's just, it's just an open gesture. It's just it's a physicality that, that affects our spirit where we're just saying, God, I need you. Just lift your hands and said, let's we say, Holy Spirit, help us. Will you fill us anew? Will you stir us? Will you muster up a new passion in our very beings to keep running after Jesus, to be partaking of him, to feast on his words, to let them just nourish us and build up our muscles and strengthen our bones and gird our spirits, Lord. That's something we can't muster up ourselves. Self-help sections get bigger and bigger in bookshops and yet humanity is still in a mess. <laughs> the answer's in you every time. We know that, but so often it's a, such a long journey from the head to the heart. Holy Spirit, will you help us? Just right now, just show each one of us the things we would rather sometimes turn to. Just let those things come to mind and then just for a moment, just in quiet, just hand them over to him.
speak to him about them. Jesus says, verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's guaranteed. So it's a promise we can step into. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.